Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is David McGuire. And I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. We're sorry to interrupt your podcast this evening, but we come to you with a very important message. Are you tired of hearing the squeaking of our chairs? Are you tired of hearing a distant echo in the background? Are you tired of hearing my lips smack the moment before I talk? I know I am. But you know how we can fix that? We need help from you. You see, Rome was not built in a day. It was built over many months, and also with lots of money. And lots of marble. We don't actually need the marble. No, we don't need it. It'd be nice, but... Okay, let's just stick to things that we actually need. Okay, sorry. Okay, thank you. Anyways, if you feel like you want to help us with our squeaking chairs or massive echo and Brian's incessant lip smacking, please go to www.nerdonomy.com. Click on Donate, where your money will go to helping our nerd cave thrive and helping Brian get over his speech impediment. And to go to our need for lots and lots of Hot Pockets. We must have the Hot Pockets. Sound check. Sound check. Checking mic one. Check, check two. Sound check, check two. Hey, Eric. Yeah. Did you know, as per one of our more recent Facebook updates... That William the Conqueror's original nickname was William the Bastard? Yes, I did know that. Yes, but do you know how he got the name? He was an illegitimate child. Actually, no. That's a common misconception. Hmm. Turns out he was just a dick to everyone. Huh. Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. How are you, sir? I'm fine. Why are you talking like a creep? Just because. <laughs> it's amazing what you can say, how things sound when you don't stop smiling. <laughs> that is absolutely terrifying. And what's amazing is it's that... It's been a long day for both of us. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's all right. I just I find it amazing, though, that you are able to transfer how totally creepy you look right now just with your voice that is impressive thank you that's not an insult that's a compliment well, that's why i said thank you oh i thought you were being sarcastic no. it's been a long day ladies and gentlemen <laughs> we're off to an interesting start tonight uh we are absolutely exhausted you moved into the theater today. We right? did. We did indeed. Which means we are three and a half weeks of opening and we are 96% sold. Hey, on our that's tickets. great. So, wow. all the things we prearranged for like marketing for the show yeah. seems like it's like I think I'm pretty sure we have a critic from one of the papers who's going to do a review for us. Yeah. And it's not going to be necessary because they may not, people may not be able to get tickets for it. You think they'll add an extra show if there's enough interest? No, the rights are too expensive. They've already said outright they're not going to extend. Oh, and they, right. Honestly, they can't because I'm already unavailable after the show closes. Ah, but what you could do is find a secret location somewhere in the woods and then do it in the woods. What? So that nobody knows, you know, you sell tickets under the table, so to speak, you know, like a secret showing of Les Mis in a secluded location so you don't have to pay the, the rights for additional shows. They'll find them, I promise. In the woods? Especially in the woods. There was a whole musical about things going on in the woods. They know these things. It's, <laughs> it's, it, it'll just, it'll happen. Damn. These publishers, they have ninjas. They work for them. Very well-trained ninjas. Hmm. Oh, well. And they can look like trees. Oh, Lord, can they look like trees. <laughs> All right, fair enough. 
Thank you. So, so be it. So anyway. So anyway, um, yeah. I had an exhausting Labor Day weekend. I'm yeah. Just, I'm tired. My throat was really bothering me for several days and was not feeling comfortable. And then I ended up working like crazy and I'm just, uh, I'm exhausted. You're burnt out. I'm totally burnt out. But that's okay because we are here to provide you folks with uh, another entertaining episode as we always do because we don't sleep and that's okay. That's the only way you make these things work. So, uh, Sean, cue up the sound, please. This week in Listener Feedback. Yes, indeed. So, first of all, we got some feedback today, actually, uh, just after releasing our one-year episode. We sure did. We did. Would you like to read the first one? Yeah. We've got feedback from several places, actually. So, we've got a lot of great interactions on our Facebook page recently, including some excellent uh, feedback from Zana and Zana says hey guys I'm just listening to your fabulous one year anniversary episode and enjoying it thoroughly and not even minding that people are looking at me funny while I'm shopping and laughing I just wanted to tell Eric that I know how he feels to be the only one of a certain name my name is well I'm not going to say your last name but it is a unique last name as well as her first name Zana and I'm the only one I love your podcast, and I have always wanted to send some listener feedback and figured, what better time? Anyhow, I was thinking uh, that I would maybe put in a suggestion about a topic while I'm here. Anywho, I was thinking I would uh, maybe put in a suggestion about a topic while I'm here. How a boot, and then in parentheses, uh, that's how us Canucks say that right. I don't know if all Canadians say that, but I'm going to trust you on this one. One on Catholic Saints. I'm not Catholic, but I do find that kind of stuff fascinating, and since you have a resident expert, that being Brian, uh, it might be fun. Keep up the good work, boys. Zana, thank you very much. Zana, thank you very much. I am hardly an expert, by the way. I I think I have a basic knowledge of uh, Catholicism, but I appreciate that you think that uh, I'm an expert. Uh, I think a basic knowledge of Catholicism is, is... definitely underestimating your skills i think that you have much more knowledge than than basic i would say uh certainly you you have a lot more knowledge than i do i think basic is walk in church sit in pew feel guilty take communion wafer sit in booth talk about feeling guilty go home propagate nine children i think that's basic knowledge of catholicism I think you have much more than that. I think those all go without saying, though. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot more you have to go through from there. Um, anyway, All Saints Day, as it turns out, is November 1st. So maybe we can align uh, an episode to go along with that. Hey, sounds good seems to me. Seems like a good idea. Um, we can do that as our kind of our, well, maybe our post-Halloween episode this year. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We also got one on Facebook from good old Stevie from the U.K., uh, he says, hey, fellows, well done on, on reaching a year. Thank you all for your hard work. Well, thank you, sir. What a fascinating history you both have. Thank you again. Uh, he continues on. I love that so many Americans have such a vast knowledge of their heritage. I wonder if it's because your ancestors' journey to the New World was such a big event in your family's history that it was so well documented. As opposed to us Brits that have uh, been around for a millennia, I don't know many British people uh, that are very knowledgeable about their heritage. That is interesting. Hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, Stevie, it's probably just a matter of you just walking down to the Hall of Records, because that's where a lot of the Americans uh, that I know of have gone for genealogical support for finding out where their ancestors came from. Although it's kind of interesting, you know, point that he makes, because besides the royal family, 
you know, which is probably the most well-documented well, in the royal peerage, heritage. Yeah, the peerage. They actually yeah. have royal genealogists who keep track of all that stuff. Yeah, no, I'm sure not everyone can afford that. So Exactly. He continues, keep up the good work, as always. And Oh, and Brian, you are definitely the first to come up on a Google search for your name, an honor I share with you. Take it easy, guys. Stevie. Thank you, Stevie. And that's awesome. kind of cool to know. Across the world, Brian. I am the most famous Brian Moriarty in the world. And ladies and gentlemen, if you heard a strange thump just now, that was the size of Brian's head expanding and then heading up against the microphone. It was indeed. It's actually been quite painful. <laughs> it's been slowly swelling ever since last week. I've noticed. It's been a lot longer than that, though. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Oh, anytime. Thank you so much. You have to have a little bit of an ego to, to say, I'm going to start a podcast. That is true. You do have to have a little you bit. Know, you know, bold enough to think people want to listen to what you have to say. And clearly they do. They do, because we have an audience across the world. A small audience, but an audience nonetheless. So, so there you go. There you go. Heather, again on Facebook, says, hey, spent this Labor Day uh, weekend with y'all. I painted a bathroom, bedroom, and sink area for my girls, and uh, the nerds were in my ears. I think I've listened to over 15 hours of Nerds on History. Nerds on, future subject, China's terracotta army. I think that's an awesome idea. You know, as it turns out, we actually had a whole episode slated to do that in the spring because the terracotta army you're referring to from the uh, Qin Dynasty was available at the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco. Well, a couple of examples were, yes. Yes, but a sizable portion yeah. of it. Um, and we, were, we had planned to make a day trip of it to go see them firsthand and then do a podcast on it. Unfortunately, both our schedules got way too busy to be able to fit it in. And it, uh, it's unfortunate because the exhibit's now closed in our museum. So uh, we'll have to rethink about how we approach that Well, it topic. just means that we have to go to China. Yeah, we can afford to do that. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like us to do an episode on the Terracotta Army, send your donations to nerdonomy.com so that you can buy us two round-trip tickets to China with a hotel and board, uh, in addition to, of course, meals, and uh, we will want to buy commemorative little uh, Terracotta Army hats, which I'm pretty sure they would sell in the gift shop uh, so that we could take on the actual guys of a terracotta soldier while delivering the episode to you. Now, I've got a simpler solution. If you're one of our listeners and you happen to own a plane, can you just, like, let it, us borrow it for the weekend? Mm-hmm. We'll bring it back at the full tank, I promise. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And if you live in China, we would love you to put us up and pay for everything. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. excellent. Got that plan taken care of. We got a really good one from Twitter, too. I'm trying to find it. Uh, you have to excuse me. Gabriel Canada. Uh, that's his Twitter handle. Uh, says, I am John Dillinger's great nephew once removed, as well as John uh, June Carter Cash's third cousin in That's terms awesome. of historic relatives. Yeah, that pretty is cool. So cool. A public enemy and a country singer. Very interesting. Mm, bluegrass. Mashup. Bluegrass. I would say June Carter Cash's country. Mm, I would say bluegrass. I would say country. <laughs> We're doing a lot of strange inflections we are, tonight. We are do exactly. We are doing weird things. Um, do we have anything else? Uh, we do have a little bit of leftover listener feedback here. We got a couple other uh, bits and pieces here. Let me bring up one from Nancy, and I'm going to go ahead and paraphrase this one a little bit because it's a little bit on the long side. Uh, she says, "Hi guys, uh, I'd like to say how much I love the podcast. I've li- listened to all the history podcasts and I'm making my way through the film podcasts. After listening to the latest history podcast, I had to write. My maiden name is Ferrera. Oh." And my parents immigrated to the U.S. in 1971 from the island of Sao Miguel in the Azores. Really enjoyed hearing references to both in the podcast. 
Uh, when you mentioned the changing of surnames, it reminded me of my godfather. Uh, when he had immigrated to the U.S., he was given his mother's maiden name of Amaral as his surname. Out of five brothers, he is the only one with a different last name. Also, in reference to the tea and coffee podcast, I wanted to mention that uh, even children are given both drink at a very early age. My mother talks about how children in Sao Miguel would be served uh, tea mixed with milk to dilute it. Uh, they lived in poverty, and it, this was a way of making the milk last longer. I apologize for the lengthy email, but I hope it was informative. Thank you for the wonderful podcasts, Nancy. In fact, I didn't paraphrase that at all, but uh, it was a great email, and you know, I wanted to read yeah, it in its yeah. entirety. Well, um, I've actually got some from surnames from uh, my father, actually. Oh, that's cool. He really enjoyed the episode, and he just had a couple of he said minor inaccuracies that I stated Uh-oh. that uh, he wanted me to help correct. Apparently, my grandparents knew each other before my grandfather went to Korea. Oh. So they didn't meet after. I think I got confused with that because my maternal grandfather met my maternal grandmother, I think, after he had served. Okay, fair so, enough. That's an easy um, one to kind of mix up. I think. I could be I could be wrong in both counts. Um, the uncle in question was Uncle Jim Moriarty, not like James Moriarty, like Professor Moriarty, Jim Moriarty. Um, and it was his daughter that had died, not his um, wife. Yeah. And my dad goes on to say that he is very interested to see if any of our Irish listeners um, have the correct pronunciation for Omirherte, and hopefully I got it correct. Sounds pretty good to me. Uh, yeah, I think so, too. I think it was pretty spot on, but, you know, sometimes no news is good news. We, we've put the word out about our British listeners to please uh, shout us down if our British accents suck, and we have not gotten a single person to say, oh, no, boys, please stop what you're doing. So, um... We'll just kind of let it go, I think. So I've got a, a, another one from Allison here. This one is really long, so I'm going to go ahead and, and again, just kind of cut it down a little bit. Uh, Hail Nerds! Oh, love that. Uh, this is, uh, again, from Allison. I just finished the most recent episode of Nerds on History about the history of coffee and tea. So this one we received a little bit late last week, so it's in reference to, of course, coffee tea episode. She says, uh, loved it. She actually served as a barista and coffee master five years and one zillion espresso shots later. I do remember this person, yes. Yes. Uh, this episode really hit home for me. Uh, she says that it's just great to hear about people talking about coffee and tea with the same passion and enthusiasm that she has. I was also surprised that she learned as much as she did, considering she is very, very knowledgeable on the subject. Um, she uh, has some feedback about the slang episode. In fact, uh, her and her husband, she said, enjoyed it very much, but she wanted to let us know about a uh, particularly uh, good one from Canada, the term hoser. Oh, right, the one that is derived from the Strange Brew film, or the characters, at least, that are in Strange Brew. Uh, I'm sure that's a part of it, but her origin is a, a little bit different. She says uh, Canadian... Made famous by those Made characters. famous, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Its origin is more of a Canadian hockey derogatory term similar to idiot or loser like we use here in the United States. It is derived from the pre-Zamboni days. So for those of you who don't know what a Zamboni is, it's a great big kind of like a like a steamroller that rolls it's over like the a tractor. Ice. And a yeah. mop yeah. put together at the same right. time. And and it and it shoots, you know. It shoots jets water, of, of warm water. water. Yeah. And it's got these little mop flatheads that help basically re-smooth, resurface the ice after a, a period. Well said. When uh, at that time, back before those, the losing team would actually have to go hose down the ice after the game and kind of, you know. Oh, okay. Smooth it out. So there you go. She uses a uh, uh, a little uh, example. Snack on that for lunch, you frickin' hooser. <laughs> I put hooser because I figured a boot who's right. I'm gonna Houser. try to put some Canadian Houser. dialect in that. 
Snack on that for lunch, you hoser. See, I wonder if it's hooser or hoser. Well, it depends. I think if you're doing Midwest, snack on that for lunch, you hoser. Like, that sounds very, like, Minnesotan, but that doesn't sound Canadian. I just love, I love how Canadians don't swear the way we do. And yet, to them, that's swearing. It's or, so polite. Yeah, it is incredibly polite. Well, she, she references the, uh, the famous one by the, by the McKinsey brothers. Which are the characters played by Rick Moranis and right. Dave Thomas. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you hoser, a Hoser, a And yeah. A is just their way of saying, hey. Yeah. Yeah, they just make the H silent for some reason. Anyhow, so. she continues to say and finishes by saying, uh, so, uh, all in all, I love Nerds on History, still getting caught up with Nerds on Film. I shamelessly plug Nerdonomy whenever I can to whomever will listen. Keep up the great work. I promise to donate when I get over the symptoms of student budgets. Ha <laughs> ha. Take care and keep it nerdy. Much love, Allison and Jeremy, which I'm assuming Jeremy is the husband that she refers sure. to. Sure. And uh, excellent use of grammar, by the way. She said whomever, not whoever, and that was the proper usage of it. So well, they are Canadian. Yes, uh, they are. She does finish by saying, P.S., do you have a P.O. box? I'm thinking of sending a nerd care package, ya hosers. We need to do that because we have people who want to send us jerky. We have people who want to send us uh, care packages of an unknown origin. Mm-hmm. We need to do that. Can we just give them your address privately? Okay, fine. Okay, cool. <laughs> Let's just make it easier that way. Sweet. We're getting jerky and generic care packages. I love it. So you have one last piece of listener feedback to round us off. I do. And for those who listen to our Nerds on Film podcast as well, this will be a repeat. But it, we feel it was really important. So yeah. we wanted to repeat it. Uh, this comes from Brett, who has uh, given us consistent feedback, I would say. One of our more consistent listeners. This is going to be a sappy email, so bear with me. In the past four years of my life, I'm 24, I've been going through some deep depression issues, and I have found that laughter is the best medicine, not medication, other than my one-year-old son bringing joy to my life. When I started listening to the various podcasts over the years, including both of the Nerdonomy podcasts, he actually stole his girlfriend's iPod so he could listen to Nerds on Film. Awesome. And even though it's only been a couple of months with yours, it has helped me with a lot of a lot of dealing with it and has actually inspired me to pursue not only trying schooling for the third time uh, and to go for something that I have always loved, which is history uh, from around the world, but to also start up a podcast of my own with my friends. So I just want to say thank you for being an awesome part of my life. And please, please, please keep up the amazing work on both podcasts. P.S. Feel free to talk about this in the listener feedback, regardless of how personal it might be. Well, I think we've just done that. Yeah, I got a little teary-eyed when I wrote the, when I read this on the Nerds on Film podcast, and rightfully so. When we started out doing this, we never expected it to inspire other people to do this for themselves. Yeah, and Brett, we are very humbled and we are very touched and very honored that we have been able to help you in your times of uh, trouble and that you have been inspired to do your own podcast. So we look forward to what you come up with and please keep us in the loop about it. If there's anything we can do for you to let the, uh, get the word out for it, we'd be more than happy to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think you sum it up perfectly and uh, I absolutely share your, your sentiments as well that uh, I think that's pretty amazing. Anyone who, anyone who decides to uh, retackle the difficulties of school and to go back and, and to do it uh, with, ha- with history because they've, they've found a renewed love of it because of something that we have done is uh, really the ultimate compliment. So thank you, Brett. All right. And now on with the show. Now on with the show. So... So what are we doing this week, Eric? Well, I decided we would bring out again the famous 
Wheel of History. There it is. There it is. You could have dusted it. No, I could have, but then it wouldn't really be the Wheel of History, would it? It needs to maintain at least a quarter inch layer of dust. That's dis- disgusting, and I disagree with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, regardless, that's the way it is, and you're going to have to deal with it tonight. Allergies aside. Sorry. Okay, fine. If my throat closes, I am not responsible. <laughs> I'm not even allergic to dust. I just want to, some reason, I want to oppose what you're saying. Um, this is the actor in me. I, I need to create conflict. Fair enough. Moving on. So, who shall have the first spin, sir? I'm going to let you go ahead and pull the lever. Give it a try. Oh, goody. Musical notation. This wheel's starting to get to know you, I think. That is a little odd, isn't it? Um, <laughs> turns out I just happen to have some some notes for the random selection of the musical notation. Um, so what's interesting is that pretty much every civilized culture has had some way of documenting music. And one of the intriguing parallels I find with Western musical notation is it's all... One line for the pitches and one line for the lyrics. Mm. That's pretty common across all forms, even though the variations are quite different. And it really goes back to Mesopotamia, actually. The Mesopotamians had a, a variation. Hold the horses. Is Brian making an ancient world reference, specifically an ancient world reference, in the Near East? Yes, I am. Holy crap, year two of Nerdonomy just got crazy. <laughs> Uh, we talked about the Mesopotamians before, dude. You can it sound like it's such a big deal. No, no. It's not a big deal when I talk about it, because it's expected to come from me. The point <laughs> is, it came from you, and that just blew my mind. Go ahead, please, please. Holy crap, right? Brian did some research. Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the Mesopotamians, um, they had a variation of cuneiform that uh, they used for notating their music. Really? Mm-hmm. This is absolutely fascinating. I yeah. This is something that I have absolutely no idea about. I did yeah. not know this. Well, that's about as far as it goes. <laughs> as oh. far, when I, when I, right now. I'm sure there's some uh, anthropologists out there who can go on it, uh, on the subject at length. Um, but I will say, though, is that continuing on this trend, uh, the Greeks actually were using music as far back as the 6th century BCE. Now, as we talked about in our theater episode, the Greeks sang all of their theatrical pieces. And I actually was under the impression that all that music of what it sounds like was lost. And it actually is not hmm. lost. They, there is a stone that is in a museum somewhere that shows the Greek lyrics. Uh, and then above, this is where it's weird. So above the notes, above, sorry, rather above the words, you see these other Greek letters. Which is like, well, that's unusual. What are those for? Well... They are essentially the Greek equivalents of A through G. In fact, that's where we get the notes of A through G from. They come from the Greek alphabet. Wow. And the nomenclature of those pitches goes back that far. It's like the Rosetta Stone of the operatic world. In a way, yeah. yeah. That's crazy. What is unfortunate about both these circumstances is we don't have any way of understanding rhythm, right? Because for those who are not Well, we are both white. Yeah. (laughs) For those who are completely... Uh, devoid of musical knowledge, the two primary concepts that you need to follow with music is pitch, right, the actual sound, the harmony, the melody, and then the rhythm that goes along with it. As far as we can see with Western music, up until the 17th century, or maybe early 16th century, uh, there's no way of documenting rhythm. 
everything was just pitch, pitch, pitch. And the, the trend continues on because uh, the Byzantines may have actually broken that rule a little bit. They had a very interesting form of music, which was, again, lyrics and music. But the music took on some form of, like, dots and dashes. I'll show you a picture of it. It l really looks fascinating. Here's the Byzantine music. And if you look, it is very, very unusual from what we know of. If you look at the top pieces, it's like these series of dots and dashes. And the only thing I can think of is the dots and dashes communicate some form of rhythm. But I don't understand where pitch is coming from, though. So somehow it's got to be the combination of the two. I just... Well, do me a favor, because you know I'm not really musically inclined. So explain to me, what is the difference between rhythm and pitch? What, what are they? What make them unique? Well, rhythm is the sense of timing. It's for you okay. to understand the space between when you sing the next note. Gotcha. Okay? That's the most basic way I think I can, I can describe it. It's perfect. Yeah. Pitch is the actual, you know, timber of the sound you're singing. Whether Got it is... It. No, if a low pitch, you would think it's... Oh. Or if it's high pitch. Oh. Exactly. Yeah. So that's all pitch is referring to. Got it. And the, the different uh, classifications of what we consider different pitches are the notes. Okay. Essentially, okay. very logical. That's what you would assume. But I'm just making sure. Yeah, and if you want to get super scientific here, there are different. You know, we know the different wavelengths for every single pitch now uh, because of modern science. So you can't actually figure out like, oh, this is middle C and this would be G sharp or whatever. But you actually can get it that specific hmm. now in measurement. Would the the vocal range of the pitch that they they would have been commonly using would it have been matched by the range that the musical instruments they had available at the time? Or would they have gone above and beyond it using just whatever the max of the, the well, human Well, certain musical is? instruments can only play certain keys. They can only play a song in a certain key. And the whole key structure didn't even come up until modern music, hmm. which I'm going to get to. The big thing is once we get to the Middle Ages, which we would qualify uh, from what they document as the ninth century all the way up until the 16th century essentially right which would make sense yeah um they just called it plain chant so if you're looking at a music note uh, what we look at as modern music uh we have five lines and we call those five lines the the staff in plain chant there's only four of them the notes which we're used to seeing that are as round are square and again they only denote pitch there is no rhythm but the reason why is because uh, this form of music was only used for hymns, right? The church controlled a lot of the culture at that time. So pretty much any artwork was being done for worship. So music at this point was pretty much just being sung and being sung in church. And given that the Christian tradition inherited the idea of tropes from the Greeks and also from the Hebrews, right? You know, the rhythms that go with the tropes are pretty much one of six patterns, so they didn't really need to document the rhythm because they knew if it wasn't, they chose the pattern that fit the chant, essentially, right? But as we get on to the turn of the first millennium, then we start to actually trying to figure out, well, what's the scale look like? And the scale, there's the, you, you may not have heard of, heard of it, referred to it this way, but the solfege scale is what I'm referring to. The scale itself is not actually tied to any notes. It's just referring to the progression of pitch within the scale. Hmm. Um, you're familiar with do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do? Yes. Yes, that's the solfege scale, basically. And under the right context, those sounds can be assigned to any series of notes, but they will all take that progression of, uh, of what we call half and whole steps. So, and I won't get into that, because that's a whole musical theory lesson. But what I do find very interesting is we see yet again... Uh, church, uh, the church influencing world culture because 
those sounds that do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do came from the first syllables of a hymn to John the Baptist. Hmm. So, uh, and, and here is how they originally go. Ut, ciunt, laxis, re, zonare, uh, fibris, mira, yestorum, uh, famuli, tuorum, solve, paluti, libiae, riatum, sancte, Johannes. So, uh, and ladies ut, and gentlemen, do not worry. Brian was meaning to do that. He has not had a stroke. He's completely and totally healthy. In fact, he's fine. Uh, in fact, Eric actually just had a demon that was uh, exercised from him by using that Latin. Thank so, God. Yeah, maybe you won't feel so tired now. Yeah, I, I feel like a new man. So, yeah, and what we're talking about, so ut, re, mi, fa, so, la, and then si, which eventually just got changed to t. And the reason why I don't repeat ut over again is because... Well, there's really only seven notes when you get to... Uh, well, oot, by the way, was the original first sound in the solfege scale. Oot? Oot. Oot. Uh, and it didn't change until the 17th century in France when someone said, maybe we should use the term do. That's a little easier to sing. Because oot is such a hard sound to carry pitch with. Oot. Oot. It, it, it doesn't sound very pleasant. It sounds kind of ugly. So... They changed it. And uh, the last note always repeats the first note because then you're basically one octave higher than where you started. So it's your way of knowing, okay, it's the same pitch, just at a different speed, essentially. Hmm. Shorter wavelength if you want to get into scientific terms. I'm really interested if the term you have soul, like when you're singing, no. is derived from this at all now? No. It just is a reference to that it's a part of you that you... Solve paluti. Solve paluti. Save. Solve. To mm. save. Actually, I think it's salve. Solve. Salve would make sense because salvation is derived from right from that. Hey, anybody out there who knows Latin? Hit us up, <laughs> please. Moving onward here. Finally, when we get to what we consider now as early classical music, again in the 16th century or so, now we see people starting to be extremely precise with the way music is done, and they based it off of the plain chant staff. But they need they found they needed to do very elaborate things like they had to be able to denote how low a note was in the grand scale of all possible sound so then you start noticing hey there's more than one cleft of there's multiple staffs there's the bass cleft there's the treble cleft there's the tenor cleft there's an alto cleft those are very rarely used but they do exist pretty much everything's now broken down into either bass cleft or, or treble cleft right bass low sounding treble higher higher sounding and they finally got into things like well, these scales are getting really specific to certain notes. Maybe we should start to signify those. And that's when you get key signatures from. And then finally, we're using measures to figure out, okay, this is where one part of the music ends and begins so that we can document rhythm. And they did that by basically assigning different values to notes, right? There's a whole note, a half note, a quarter note, an eighth note, a sixteenth note, and a thirty-second note. I think some, now in the age of digital music, we can actually get as far down as a sixty-fourth note which is like super fast, um, but all the different ways of saying, hey, these are now fragments of what make up one measure of music. Yeah, I think the only person using that is probably Fat Boy Slim. Probably. Yeah. Right. With the, with the check it out now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> funk Soul Brothers, right? With the Funk Soul Brothers song. Either that or Daft Punk. Almost certainly Daft Punk then. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. So anyway, uh, that was a very five minute crash course into where Western musical notation comes from. I will make one quick note about Eastern musical notation. Uh, the Chinese had it way earlier than the Western culture did, as they did a lot of things. Yep. They had it uh, at least a, a thousand years before we did. <laughs> and uh, not unlike their written language, it's vertical. 
Right. Uh, and they have their own symbols that I can't decipher because I, I can't, don't know the Chinese alphabet. But they they look very – it would look like regular handwriting to us, but it, it was, in fact, for music. And the Indians uh, also had a similar system in place yes. using the symbols from Hindi or the, the Sanskrit, really. Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. Sanskrit texts. Well, so. it's interesting because in China, the, the binocular was actually invented for that purpose of reading these really, really tall sheet musics because they were all written vertically. Really? No. <laughs> that was my hint of sarcasm. How about you take a spin at the uh, wheel of history? Okay. Soap. Soap, huh? Soap. All right. Yeah. Sure, why not? Well, you know, going right back to our family histories... Uh, I was, again, going through that enormous document that my cousin put together and found some interesting information about my grandmother on my father's side, who during uh, the Second World War, not unlike many people, produced her own soap. Really? Yeah, she made soap. And my young father was put to the task of helping her out with that process, which my cousin describes as being extremely smelly and unpleasant and not a lot of fun. Uh, And I don't know if my grandmother ever sold the soap, for, you know, uh, additional income into the house, but uh, they certainly would have used the soap. Uh, And it is something that has been around for absolutely thousands of years. Soap is, well, it's logical. It makes sense. You want to stay clean because being clean aids in health and having excellent health means you have a long life. So people have recognized the the value of, of cleanliness for a very long time. Originally, it was more associated with religious ceremonies and the need to stay pure and going right, through cleansing the body, helping cleanse the soul. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. So no big surprise, then you find some of the earliest recipes for making soap going back thousands of years. Probably with the clergy, I imagine. Not with not necessarily Christian clergy, but like with priesthoods and so yeah, forth. With yeah. the priestly class of, of ancient right. Babylon is one of the earliest examples, uh, where from about 2800 BC, uh, we have some of the very first, very basic recipes for soap, which are really just kind of mirrored today in, in soap production. They haven't really changed all that much. They've changed in the way that we create uh, the consistency of soap, right? The way that we make harsh soaps and and soft soaps, soaps that are much less, uh, have much less um, um, alkaline solution in them. So they're, they're meant more for, you know, moisturizing purposes than they are for actual cleanliness and things of that nature. But well, there's all sorts of different types of soaps that are out there. And that very basic formula coming from Babylon was simply water and then oil and alkaline. And that's really all you need to make soap. Traditionally, animal fat is actually used, and that was used for a very long time. Oils came about much later in the production of soap. Right, because uh, I know the Romans used olive oil uh, in soaps. Actually, sorry, the, uh, the um, my apologies, the Israelites used, when they were able to f- make olive oil, they were able to use that for, for soap. Sure, in addition to the Romans as well, yes. actually. So the Ebers papyrus from Egypt, as you would imagine papyrus coming from, which dates to about 1550 BC, uh, is also another very ancient world example. And this is actually one of the most famous papyrus in in history. Uh, It has so many different uh, medical formulas that have been written in. Problem is, we don't really understand much of what's written on there. We don't know how to make a lot of the the medicines and ointments, and in this case, soaps, because uh, we don't know what the word was in reference to the actual plant. We only know it for some things. 
Mm. Right. So they, the Egyptians had their own words for all sorts of different plants and minerals and, and other things. We just don't know what they were. In the case of soap, however, we do know. Uh, and again, it was with the use of animal fats, vegetable oils, and again, alkaline salts. So pretty simple, pretty basic. When these are all brought together, they interact with each other and they produce uh, the raw soap that we're, that we're familiar with. Ancient Rome really brings soap forward uh, in history and, and keeps it in Western society and even gives it its name. The word for soap in, in Latin appears as sapo. So sapo, meaning, meaning soap, is uh, first appears by Pliny the Elder uh, in his Historia Naturalis, uh, which he discusses soap being made by the Germanic cultures and the Gauls. Uh, and that's kind of where soap is, is first recorded in, uh, in, in the Roman world and where it you know, gives us its namesake today. Uh, it's yeah, interesting. I think, I think before that, they would use just perfumed oils in bathing to to clean themselves. Sure. Essentially, yeah. you would apply oils to your to your body. You would then use a scraper to go ahead and scrape off right. the, the dead skin and excess dirt that was on your body. And that was a way of making sure you got particularly clean. Yes. Uh, it was not good for your skin, however. It caused a lot of irritation. It caused a lot of sores. It caused a lot of very unpleasant side effects if you were very persistent in doing so. And most, most people wouldn't have been. It would have been really among the upper class. Um, so bathing with soaps... Uh, was just much easier yeah. and produced a much better result. Although soap for the, the purpose of specifically using during bathing uh, was only one form of cleanliness. Obviously, the, the cleaning of your garments and clothing uh, is actually how soap was most often being used uh, in the ancient world because it was very harsh stuff. You know, It wasn't very you know, pleasant to have on your skin all the time. It would certainly get you clean, uh, but unless you really went to the trouble and, and spent a lot of time and money to make it really uh, a very pleasant experience by scenting it and adding uh, additional additives that made it pleasant, it was much more convenient as a, as a detergent than it really was as a, as a way of cleaning your body. Uh, but we do know that the, the Romans made reference to the Germanic tribes and to the people of Gaul uh, using soap for that purpose of cleaning themselves. However, uh, Pliny likes to uh, state that it was actually quite disapprovingly uh, by him, it was the men who were more likely to bathe than it was the women. Uh, that was probably hmm. a bit of a stab, however, at the people. It was more a bit of propaganda than what is actual truth. But who knows? Sure. There's an interesting myth, though, that comes out of Rome that gave us the, the name of soap. Uh, this, of course, like I said, was Sapo. Uh, and it's supposed to have been in reference to a Mount Sapo, where animals were being sacrificed and then their bodies were being burned. And the ashes from the fires would then mix with the animal fats that were being saved and the ashes, of course, which, you know, if you it's treat them properly. Alkaline, yeah. yeah, exactly. You treat them properly, you get the, the pure uh, alkalines from it, uh, would create the soap. Now, this is thought to be completely and totally made up. Uh, there is no actual area in anywhere in, in the ancient uh, Roman world that has been identified as a Mount Sapo. We, we just don't know where it was if it ever really did exist. And it's just most likely convenient way of telling a story about how you can use ash and animal fats and bring them together to create soap. Sure. So, again, probably doesn't have any And actual... you also have to cook them together, too, to get the chemical reaction. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And it's a very stinky and awful process. Yeah. Well, anyone wants to know what that looks like, uh, watch the film Fight Club, because they... <laughs> That's true. They do talk about how they make soap in a very dark way. Yes. But many ancient historians in the Roman world would continue to make reference to plenty 
uh, and his uh, his reference to the Germans in particular as being the excellent and expert soap makers, and that would continue for for many years uh, throughout antiquity and into uh, into the Middle Ages in Europe. Uh, now China, again, had detergent type soaps for a very very long time. Um, before it was really oftentimes being used in Europe. But it was a little different, as it was usually made from uh, vegetable oils and herbs. So it didn't have the same kind of chemical reaction that we're talking about when we're talking about traditional soap. That wasn't introduced until China, until the modern era. So they had a different soap-like detergent, though, with its own chemical reactions that were being used in China at the time. They were essentially doing the same thing, just with, with what they had. More or less. It's a little different when you really break down the chemistry, but it, ha- it accomplishes the same exact thing. Right. Yeah. What I find interesting is as we move into the Middle East and we move into particularly around the 12th century, uh, the Islamic world absolutely takes over soap making and becomes for the very first time in the world an actual industrialized process. So there are an actual trade of soap makers that are now in existence and it's become a bit of an art. It is something that has now been really perfected. Uh, and the uh, the word alkaline is actually derived from Arabic. Really? Yeah. Al-Kaleh which means ashes, uh, is where we get the modern term for alkaline oh, really? today. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that's a holdover from the 12th century uh, Islamic world. Uh, and as you can imagine, during the period of nastiness of the Crusades and all of that lovely stuff that would be going on, uh, you would find uh, an obvious trade between different ideas and cultures. And, and soap was kind of reintroduced back into Europe uh, by way of, by way of uh, the Near East. Yeah. So with that, you have now this really perfected technique for creating soap. And it's interesting because in Naples, you actually find whole guilds being created around soap making. And in Italy and in Spain, uh, in or around you know, the, the ninth century or so, it's now become a very, very respectable trade. If you can make good soap, you are well respected. And it wasn't just considered to be that of woman's work, right, which was the homework but it was actually considered to be a, a, a profession for men that was on par and equal to carpenters and blacksmiths and other very important members of the community. So this was something that was you know, pretty significant. As you can imagine, you know, 16th and 17th century uh, Europe would really want to kind of cling on to these new soaps and try to perfect them and have it match kind of the, the regal uh, culture that was very much prominent during Europe at that time. You find that uh, the upper class, anything and everything the upper class was doing was being emulated by everybody else in their own form. And soaps were no exception. And soaps become much more elaborate, much more fancy, if you will. France uh, also kind of takes the opportunity to to start infusing soaps with much more fragrant perfumes and things of that nature. Uh, And you find that they try to move away from utilizing uh, animal fat and actually taking advantage of oils, in particular... Uh, you want to olive oil is is really really yeah quite it's excellent. less smelly I imagine yeah it, it's not as as strong as right pungent, yeah, yeah. Uh, it is not as uh, as effective really but it is much more pleasant and with that you can start producing transparent soaps you can start uh, playing around with it and making a very soft soap that you can mold into all sorts of different f- shapes and forms and creating little rosettes and things of that nature. Right. You, you can you can do stuff that uh, makes it much more appealing, uh, much more aesthetic. And you'll find that uh, around that time, uh, at least in the 18th century, or excuse me, in the 1800s, that's when you find liquid soap kind of first being 
utilized and and coming together. Well, I I think it's important to know that the one parallel between perfumes and soaps is they both require oils. You need oils to be able to extract the essence of your fragrance out of whatever you're driving it from. And not just extracting it, but but keeping it. Right. And and being able to use it as a catalyst for creating that uh, that perfume and smell upon you. Exactly. Uh, In ancient Egypt, uh, talking about perfumes for a quick moment, it was not uncommon for party goers to receive a small cake of animal fat. And that cake of animal fat would be infused with, with lavender. And you would place it on your head. And as the heat of the party would kind of generate from all these people being, you know, packed indoors, the, the fat would start to melt and the sweet sm- smelling sticky kind of uh, animal fat would then kind of fall over your body. And that was your way of, way of wearing deodorant. Hmm. Yeah. Not exactly a soap, but yeah, definitely on, on par with a perfume. Yeah. Uh, what I find interesting though, is that uh, liquid soap really moved soap forward and became uh, a more, you know, common household item at this point. Yeah. Uh, and it was much more powerful. You could use liquid soaps and detergents now in, in just about everything that you were doing, whether it was, you know, cleaning your dishes now or, or doing your laundry. Uh, and uh, we we owe a lot of that to 1865 when a patent put forth by William Shepard uh, for liquid soap was, was introduced. Um, and what's interesting is by 1898, the uh, B.J. Johnson Soap Company uh, started introducing a very effective liquid soap that was introduced in just about every aspect of, of household life, so much so that they actually abandoned the name for their company and replaced it with that uh, soap brand instead. Uh, probably not a bad idea, considering the name of the company. Uh, however, uh, you do find that with that, everything else starts falling forward. So you have uh, Pine Sol and Tide and all of these other very famous detergents that we now have today all coming out as a, as a form of competition against some of these first liquid soaps that were being introduced. And now they're the hallmarks of uh, you know households around the world. So interesting just kind of how soap, you know, starts out in a very, very simple form, but evolves into something that is, uh, you know, so very important to us today. And yeah. the, the truest forms of soaps, which are still being used as lubricants for machinery, are, are vital to uh, to the machine uh, industry and to, to, you know, manufacturing plants and, and naval vessels and all sorts of what have you. Uh, we need those soaps to kind of keep everything uh, clean and working. Yeah, sure. Eric, I'm feeling pretty tired. Uh, we were usually going to do five spins. It would be cool what if I just do one more and then you just do one more? All right, fine. I think the Wheel of History will forgive us. Cool. All right, here we go. The smallest country in the world. Well, turns of history, what are you playing at? Turns out I do know something about the smallest country in the world. And why is that, Eric? Because you are the president of it. No. The president of nerdonomy. <laughs> <laughs> if I was if that was the case, well, we should have a lot more money than we actually do. No, but if I was in fact uh in head of the smallest country in the world, I would be head of the Roman Catholic Church because Vatican City is actually the smallest country in the world. Well, I did say that you should have run for pope, but uh yeah. you didn't listen to me. You could very well be the president of the smallest country in the world. So folks, I mean, I could go on my normal Catholic uh, rant, and I will. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are actually five countries that I think are the smallest. I think that are the smallest, and they deserve a little bit of attention too. But I will start with Vatican City, as it is the smallest one out there. 
But keep in mind, though, it wasn't always the smallest city in the world. I mean, Vatican City is only, I want to say, 82, 83 years old. Because, yes, while the Apostolic Palace has been there for centuries, you know, the name Vatican City comes from the fact that Vatican Hill was where they believed uh, St. Peter was crucified. So uh, in tradition of the Catholic Church, you always try to build the basilica in honor of the saint who's been martyred as close to where they were martyred as possible. Um, or in any case, we're close to where the event took place. Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Israel is where they believe that, as close to believe is where they where Christ's tomb was. So they um, built it in honor of St. Peter. And, I mean, the Pope at one point had most of Italy under his power. And they were once point, they were just called the Papal States. And there was lots of conflict uh, progressively as the Italian government became more independent. They had kept seizing more and more land, and the church kept losing more and more land. Um, and eventually, at one point, they were just landlocked into Vatican City, and that's all they could do. Um, but they still refused to acknowledge that the Italian government owned that land. They, they still thought it was the church's land. Until Mussolini came to power in 1920. And in 1929, Mussolini cut a deal with Pope Pius Twelfth, or maybe it was the 11th, one of the Piuses, one of the later Piuses, basically cut a deal to say, okay, let's just cut the crap. Let me have Italy. If you acknowledge the kingdom of Italy, which is kind of funny because the king and queen of Italy had no power at this point. Mussolini had usurped all the, all the power they had. If you acknowledge the presence of Italy as a state, we will acknowledge the Vatican as a separate entity, a self, a completely independent city-state. And they, they agreed to the deal. And uh, because of that, it became the smallest country in the world. It is only one-tenth of a square mile. It's the size of a, of a, of a luxurious golf course. And, uh, and it turns out the Pope is the only absolute monarch left in Europe. Hmm. Not because of that, but just he's the one who rules over that. I find it ironic that the Vatican City was born out of a fascist dictatorship led by an absolute lunatic. Yeah, exactly. Irony. Yeah. In its purest form. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, certainly. A um, couple of quick little factoids about it. The Only about a thousand people live inside of Vatican City. 75% of its uh, quote-unquote citizens are uh, members of the clergy. Makes sense, of course, because they're usually on assignment mm -hmm. uh, in Rome. Or they're they're starting to become uh, doctors of theology. So, Because uh, there's, there's a pontifical university in the Vatican. Uh, there, but the funny thing is that citizenship is not in guaranteed. Like I don't think anyone's ever been born in the Vatican. Citizenship is assigned to you while you were there, and uh, once your assignment no longer requires you to be in the Vatican, your citizenship is revoked. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of unusual. Uh, well, there's not much room for retirement. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and I won't go into the other things like the cool things about the Vatican, like the Swiss Garden, things like that. But chocolate fountains, right? Exactly. Uh, but the the, the, the the unicorn pen, right? Yeah, which we don't talk about. No, much, no. In case you guys have wanted to know, the Vatican itself has been the official seat of the the Supreme Pontiff uh, since the 14th century. So hmm. I do have one interesting factoid about Vatican City. There is a single census officer. Yeah, there's one. He's yes. the friendliest priest of everyone in the Vatican City. In fact, he, he that's the requirement. Uh, and he doesn't really need to go around and interview anyone. He just knows everyone. So he just sits in an office and he, he compiles the census. This is complete nonsense. Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to just go with it and say, oh, yeah, absolutely true. Although, you know what? 
I, I wouldn't be surprised if it is true. I was just like, yeah, of course, Father Federigo. Yeah, yeah makes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, Love but, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, like I've been to the Vatican. Um, <laughs> though if you're a Catholic and you go to the Vatican and you have a plenary indulgence, guaranteed straight ticket to heaven, provided you'd like, you know, die shortly afterwards. Right. Um, as long as you die in, in as long the you Vatican. Because you're more, likely, more than likely going to sin after you leave Vatican City. Or even while you're in Vatican City, if you do it right. So... <laughs> There's a funny story about Jane McCarthy sneaking into the Pope's apartment. Swear to God, true story. She talks about it when she was on Conan O'Brien about a year ago. Look it up. It's it's pretty sacrilegious and hilarious at the same time. But, you know, I feel kind of like one other country in Europe got slighted by Vatican City. Because there was one other city-state that I'm pretty sure was the smallest country in the world up until this point in time. And even though I can't confirm it because I don't have data that goes back to the early 20th century... But Monaco, hmm. Monaco is the world's second smallest city, and it's only uh, 0.8 square miles. Second smallest country. Sorry, uh, city, city country, city state, city state <clears throat> sorry, yeah. uh, country, um, which, of course, it is a principality. They are run by an absolute prince. They were an, an absolute prince up until they, uh, absolute monarchy, rather, until they adopted a constitution in 1910 that gave them, basically, a constitutional power. There's a national council now, a Supreme Court even. But what I think is really interesting is it's protected by France militarily. They don't even have the standing military. Uh, and it gets most of its income from gambling, which is why Monte Carlo is so commonly associated with it. Monte Carlo is a district within the city state uh, where a lot of the gambling takes place. It's where, of course, Ian Fleming based Casino Royale. There's, of course, the Grand Prix that takes place in Monaco, uh, one of the foremost auto races in the world by that logic most of the casino resorts in vegas could be considered their own country then oh you certainly could if you if they were able to pull that off but they <laughs> no good luck with that one um what i find very fascinating is that uh, according to uh, the monogasque that's how they pronounce the, the name that's the demonym the people who live there the monogasques according to the monogasque policy they had fought very long to have no taxes whatsoever in that country. And for a long time, there was no income taxes whatsoever. But they had to find a way. It was, they weren't making enough. The government itself wasn't making enough money, even off the gambling. So the rules now is that residents of the country are taxed income tax, but citizens of the country are not. Hmm. But the funny thing is that residents can go to casinos and citizens cannot. A citizen of Monaco is legally not allowed to enter one of the casinos. That's so funny. Yeah. That's a bizarre right. little little balancing act. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so it's that weird little economic uh, seesaw that you have there. That's pretty much all I've got on Monaco. There's, of course, way more you can sure. look up about it. There's uh, way more on every topic that we're going to talk the about. The late today. actress Grace Kelly uh, is buried in Monaco because she married Prince Rainier III and therefore became princess uh, in a consort of Monaco. So, hmm. you know. That's probably the big claim to fame. That's what actually made it more the luxurious, right. uh, you know, because it is in the French Riviera, so it does have this kind of touristy mystique to it. But it was that sense of elegance that, because of Grace Kelly being a movie starlet and now being royalty, that really kind of sealed the deal and made it that destination spot. Hmm. So, moving on within there, we also have Nauru, which is uh, uh, now we're bumping up to eight square miles, a small little island. You can drive around it in about 20 minutes. It is the smallest island nation in the world. Ironically, it used to be one have some of the world's most wealthy people because of the phosphate exports it could generate. Hmm. And then, unfortunately, uh, their resources dried up. 
and now they are very, very poor. But it, but at its height up in the 1970s, 95% of the people in that country were being employed by the government. And uh, they were very, very wealthy. And now, ironically, they're very poor, and they have 90% of the, of the uh, country are overweight. They're obese, and 40% of them have type 2 diabetes. Wow. Yeah, so quite a drastic reversal of fortune, as that's, we would say. That's really sad. <laughs> yeah. Can you give me a more cheerful small country? Because that, that one just depressed me. Well, how about Tuvalu? That sounds like a happening place to me. Tuvalu. So you've heard of the uh, domain .tv? Sure. I always thought it was about television. Nope. Yeah. No. <laughs> nope. Tuvalu gets most of its income. In fact, I would say uh, 90% of its income. I, I, I can't get the statistics because it's not loading on my iPad, unfortunately. But they got that by selling off their, their country's domain, top-level domains. And so they got a company to, to back them and to start selling it. And that's how they make most of their money. That is purely genius. It's really genius. Um, they are two islands. Um, what's kind of frightening about it, though, is that because of the low elevation of it, due to the thermal expansion of our oceans, thanks to that little thing called global climate change, the island actually may sink into the ocean within the next 50 years. Wow. Kind of wild, right? Yeah. Well, if they save up enough money, they can just buy a new island. Maybe they can buy Nauru, and then uh, everyone's problem is solved. They have a new island, Nauru has money, and there you go. There you go. Well, I don't know if they'd want to live there, because Nauru is a barren wasteland mostly now. Um, That's okay. Everyone can just live on yachts. Sure. Uh, they just dock at large marinas that are built out of the entire island. And they are actually very close in size. Nauru is eight square miles, and Tuvalu is only nine square miles. See? So. It's a match made in heaven. Yes, indeed. The fifth one, which I think is really cool, this is, uh, is a north-central uh, part of it, uh, near Italy. In the, uh, in the Adriatic coast called San Marino. It is an independent uh, city-state. It is one of the oldest republics in uh, the world. Sure. Actually. Uh, San Marino was named after... Uh, it was founded in the year 300 by the name of a Christian stonecutter named, hey, Marino. And uh, basically, since the year 300, as we know at this point... Christianity was just now starting to be legalized, so they they went to this island to escape persecution from the from the Romans, and um, basically they just kind of formed their own country. And their motto, their national motto, is one word: liberty. And in the 1500s, they became the republic. In fact, they they pretty much have a reputation for just being kind of a good neighbor. They're very they keep to themselves. They're pretty nice. And so when all those wars took place around that region, they kind of just get left alone. Like, Napoleon didn't bother to conquer it because, no, they got a good thing going on there. Let's leave them alone, you know? <laughs> uh, their government is pretty fascinating because they have a, a council, like a leg legislature. They call it the, uh, just just a council. It's 60 members. And they elect two captain regents, one from each member of the opposing political party. So they have complete balance. Wow. Yeah. R rather ingenious. Um, and not in, not unlike the Roman Empire, right? Mm -hmm. They you know the yep. co the uh, co consuls there, um, and they only administer the government affairs for a six month term. That's genius. Yeah, that means all politicians have six months of vacation. Exactly. So it's uh, it's pretty much a flawless system, and it works for such a small population of people. Wow. Yeah, 
they were one of the poorest countries in Europe up until World War II. But uh, because of the uh, tourism industry taking off in that part of the world, uh, they are now amongst some of the world's wealthiest people, huh. the San Marinians. So there you have it. Those are the five smallest countries in the world. How was that? That's fantastic. Yeah. We didn't talk about Luxembourg, though. Luxembourg, i surprised. Actually, I don't think it's even on the top ten. Really? Yeah, like Luxembourg, like Liechtenstein, the countries that you would think like are really, really small. Nope. Huh. I mean, they're small, but they're not as small. They're probably like the size of Rhode Island or so. See, it's, that's genius, though. They're not too big that they get noticed by everyone. They're not too small that they're a curiosity. And that is where the greatest threat lies. It, so. Exactly. This is how the werewolves are going to take hold in Luxembourg. Folks, if you come across like an article talking about like Luxembourgian scientists uh, making links between you know, eugenics and lycanthropy, be very scared because our we may have become self-fulfilling prophets at that point. Yeah, and if you are visiting Luxembourg and you encounter people who have abnormally large amounts of body hair, please inform your local government immediately. And please start stockpiling silver. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. and listening to dubstep. Get, download all the dubstep you can. This is going to have to be an ongoing joke for the rest of the year, I'm sorry. <laughs> it probably will. <laughs> Um, we have to do a cold open that involves like a werewolf attacking us playing dubstep. <laughs> <laughs> and it, 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 the wolf just runs off scared. <laughs> genius. Absolutely yeah. genius. Um, let's wrap this up, sir. So what's, let's give the Wheel of History one more spin. Aspirin. Why am I stuck in the bathroom tonight? I have no idea. I mean, you you loved it so much that we made an episode about it earlier. Yeah, that's true. That is true. That was my idea to do that episode. So I guess the wheel of history is just uh, connecting with me. Oddly tonight. tailored to our own tastes, don't yeah, you find it? Kind of strange. Hmm. Very strange. Yeah. Who knew? By the way, folks, these topics were chosen at random. They were not. They they legitimately were. They they were not like like oh let's do these ones. Yeah, that is true. They were yeah. chosen at random. So aspirin. Aspirin is actually kind of fascinating because. It has been around a lot longer than aspirin has been trademarked and branded, obviously, right? The actual chemicals that provide the relief that aspirin is well known for, which is Corsa, an anti-inflammatory, helps relieve uh, fever. Uh, it is uh, obviously an analgesic, right? So it's a painkiller. It's this, it's this great stuff. Yeah, and it's also a blood thinner because it can you can take it in the middle of having a heart attack and it could potentially save your life or a stroke as well absolutely yeah. yes yeah. so um this stuff has been around for a really long time people of the ancient world recognized its potential right away so we find some very early references to it uh going back again to mesopotamia and uh if you reference uh the city-state of ur you end up finding uh some references to to the willow plant the willow tree as being used to to essentially be a remedy for fever. Right. So the willow plant, uh, the willow tree, along with many other solicitate plants. Right. So that's the that's the enzyme uh, inside that that gives us this great relief that we find uh, harnessed and and used in aspirin. So it's really much more plant based than one might assume. Absolutely, it is. One hundred percent, it is. And the the ancient Mesopotamians were aware of this. Uh, we find that the ancient Egyptians were also aware of this. And again, when we talk about the Ebers papyrus, right, we're talking about another formula for 
aspirin being used at that time. And the Mesopotamians, the ancient Egyptians, were very well known for sharing and spreading this kind of uh, information back and forth between the trade routes. So it makes sense that the two of them uh, would be kind of the first to record and, and have formulas written for this. So th this has gone on and would continue to be used uh, all throughout the the Roman Empire and, and for ages on beyond that. But it really wasn't um, harnessed to its fullest potential until much later, until the 18th and 19th centuries. When basically you had modern chemistry being developed. Exactly. And you, you had it with the, the desperate need to combat malaria. And uh, the outbreaks of malaria that were going on uh, were found to have just been absolutely devastating. And the, the, any relief at all that they could find uh, was, was highly sought after. Uh, and there was a very expensive uh, cure, which was Peruvian bark. So the, the natural additives inside of Peruvian bark uh, are perfect for combating and fighting off uh, malaria. And in fact, it really ends up kind of providing it as a cure. But that is a, a very expensive import into much of Europe. And so what they ended up doing was trying to find an alternative. And uh, obviously the willow plant, uh, which was well known for its healing properties, had been passed down throughout the ages. Uh, and they found that the the bark of the white willow in particular could be uh, ground up and used in a kind of powdered form uh, as a very effective way of fighting against uh, the fever that often accompanies malaria. They were a bit confused, though, because they thought because they were both barks that they were working with that this was going to have the same healing effects that uh, it would have with a Peruvian bark, but uh, it didn't quite work out that, that same way. Regardless, it was still a much cheaper alternative to relieving some of the symptoms of malaria, which at least allowed you to kind of uh, relax and be able to recover from it quickly, or more quickly, I should say. So now there came this, this desire to really try to break down what it was that was making people feel better as a result of this plant and try to harness it in its purest form. And this would go on in conservative efforts for quite some time, nearly 150 years, people would be trying all these different uh, concoctions and formulas to try to really get uh, what would eventually become you know, this kind of pure aspirin. Uh, and it was uh, eventually accomplished and then trademarked extremely quickly by the Bear Company. And, of course, this is the famous bear aspirin uh, that we all know and love today. Yeah, they've been around for over a century, I think, at this point, right? Oh, absolutely. In fact, they had been around as a, as a drug and dye-producing company uh, for, for quite some time up until they, they actually introduced aspirin in uh, 1899. So once they had figured out the way to actually bring it all together and, and form uh, ASA, okay, which is, uh, which is what aspirin uh, is, uh, they were able to to now market it on a on a very large scale. And at this point, has the has the patent lapsed? Like, can they? Is the no. patent no? They still on the patent on. That's right. And with it comes aspirin's perhaps most interesting contribution to history because you have the Bear Company, which was a German based company, uh, trying to create a world monopoly on aspirin. And they, they have this very characteristic, you know, the little cross symbol that you find on the bear. All that was trademarked by bear. Nobody else was allowed to produce this. So they received a lot of heat. You know, there was a lot of people very angry about this. They wanted to be able to produce their own aspirins and be able to market it and sell it. But uh, they had gained this great monopoly. And they started buying up property in the United Kingdom. They started buying property in the United States. And in the U.S., they actually had a whole factory that was producing aspirin and distributing it to, to people here. Um, that would only last for so long, though, 
because you found with the outbreak of the First World War, Germany was now being seen in a very different light by a lot of people in Europe. And there was real conservative effort to prevent Bayer gaining any kind of uh, economic advantage in the world of, uh, of medicine, uh, which was you know very new at that time. There weren't a whole lot of people really producing pharmaceuticals uh, on the level that Bayer was doing. Uh, and so the First World War came as a pretty big hit to them. But you found that uh, their salvation was in America, because America didn't enter the war until 1917. So they had several years to prepare for what would eventually come when America did enter the war. And it was an effort to try to actually buy up other smaller companies in the United States uh, and spread a lot of their assets around so that uh, if the, the parent company was hit, they wouldn't uh, feel it nearly as bad. But uh, a lot of American lawmakers were kind of on to what they were doing. And uh, as a result of America entering into the war, they, uh, they ended up acquiring pretty much all of Bayer's uh, assets in America. And uh, very nearly bankrupt Bayer. I mean, it put them in a very difficult position. They were able to recover after the First World War, but they had lost one of their most lucrative uh, areas of uh, investment, which was the United States. Uh, and you'll find that their their holds, uh, sorry, their so their assets were acquired by other American companies who also inherited the trademark and inherited the brand, and they were able to advertise and sell Bear Aspirin. Uh, without the bear company actually being involved, so much of uh, much of that aspirin that was being sold in the United States was actually not any way associated with the bear parent company any longer. Uh, it was all taken and uh, and assumed. But the, um, but the bear brand that we see today is still the company we're referring to. That is true up until they they actually reacquired the trademark in 1994 for the price of one billion dollars. Wow. Yeah, I know. Uh, they actually bought it back from the company that, who had bought it originally, which is the Sterling Products uh, Incorporated. So, you know, it, it's it's quite interesting uh, the way that the, it all starts out. They, they have this great hold on it, and they end up losing it and handing it over to, uh, handing it over to an American company. Yeah. Uh, who, during the 1918 you know epidemic of the Spanish flu, which we talked about in our previous episode, The Fifty Shades of Black Death, that was uh, a huge opportunity for them. And they actually tried to kind of rebrand it. They tried to move away from the, the name Bear because it was associated with the Germans and there was still a lot of anti-German sentiments in the country at the time. But they failed miserably because it was still so well known. And uh, by the time the Spanish flu had been in full force in the United States, they were shoving aspirin down every doctor trying to get them to prescribe it to every patient and trying to make as much money as possible. Yeah, this is a point in time where aspirin needed a prescription, but yet you could get cocaine over the counter. Yep. Exactly. So, what a figure. wacky old world we lived in. Yeah, exactly. It was very weird. But a lot of people actually ended up dying of aspirin poisoning. Uh, we talked about that on the previous episode because people were taking too much of it. Too much of it. Yeah. Uh, aspirin, unfortunately, however, would uh, really kind of fall away in the 1950s and the 1960s when Tylenol and ibuprofen came on the market and were found to be much more effective uh, drugs for, for dealing with, again, fever and, and pain. And aspirin very nearly died out. Uh, you'll find that is until around the late 80s when, like you mentioned, it was uh, now recognized as a blood thinner. And so now it became synonymous with really heart attacks. And pretty much every bear commercial that I think I've ever seen since I was a child is now for, for heart health. Yeah, almost. exactly. It's associated with heart health. 
Uh, and it's absolutely true. It's it's still good stuff. It's been used for thousands and thousands of years and should continue to be used. Uh, but there are more effective ways of, of dealing with uh, with pain. Yeah. So it's an interesting little history. Totally. Well, folks, we hope you've enjoyed this uh, second bout of the Wheel in History. And um, share your comments. Share your thoughts with us if there's anything you'd like to correct or add to these topics this evening. Yeah, just as a reminder, folks, feel free to go ahead and send your feed- feedback to us on our website, or you can click on our listener feedback button. You can also reach me at the Brickmont, And uh, I am at the uh, Brian Moriarty on Twitter. And, of course, our company Twitter handle is at Nerdonomy. Absolutely. Please give us your feedback. Please join us on our Facebook page weekly, where you can participate in the wide variety of activities that we have going on on there. And, uh, of course, folks, until we meet again, stay nerdy. Tune in next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Eric, what time is it? Oh, crap.